Welcome to another Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers exclusive. In 2012, we sat down with retired ex-NYPD detective turned actor, producer, and consultant Randy Jurgensen to talk about his career in law enforcement and his segue into film. We talk about his rise in rank as a police officer by going undercover into the gay underground, a story which eventually will turn into the 1980 Al Pacino film Cruising, along with his transition into Hollywood and his unique stories that one would have working with some of the most iconic actors and in some of the most iconic films of the 1970s and 80s. So what famous person did Jerkinson end up locking up while he was on the cruising case? What question does actor Ed O'Neill pose to Randy through Dion? Well, you'll have to listen to find out in an all-new, enthralling, exclusive, and highly informative episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I find that the, uh, I'm going to choose my words here, uh, like the hardest time, and I didn't know it at the time, the hardest time for being a policeman was the uh, mid to late 60s and certainly the 70s. Of course. And what made that so difficult was uh, there was a combination of things in there, and one of them... uh, the primary uh, one was drugs, yeah. just total and complete drugs, you know. And I always preference that by saying, you know, President Nixon in 1971 or 1970 declared war on drugs. And I always say before getting into this, we lost that war. Yeah. So let's just get that out of the way. Of We've course. lost that war. But the 70s, the, the, the 70s, the late 60s and 70s, it was a very difficult time to be a, a policeman. And one of the biggest reasons, the biggest reasons besides drugs, the civil rights movements, uh, you know, the, the various organizations that really were called radicals at the time, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the killing of, uh, of policemen. But one of the biggest things was... Uh, the United States government, not because Nixon was there, because don't forget Johnson was before Nixon, yeah. and after Nixon came came other people. And what had happened was, is that we, the system was not working. The, the same way the system's not working today. I'm not going to go into that. But the system was not working then. Whatever you want to believe was the system, it was not working. Whether it was the war, whether it was the college students, whether it was the poverty, whether it was the drugs, the system was not working. And definitely the ones at the bottom of the ladder, right? They were paying the price clean across the board. They were the ones that were being killed in Vietnam. They were the ones that were being drafted. They were the they were the ones that were being sort of like shut out from 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 whatever whatever the pie was to get a piece of that pie. I mean, they were Larry Last and getting in there, and mainly mainly that I say was for black people, and I say that because where I worked as a policeman, I just worked with black people. Yeah. I born their babies, I locked them up, I mean, I told their, 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 their mothers their kid died of an overdose. I mean, I just lived in that entire world. It seems, you, for you, 
to talk about how you said that the, that the late sixties and seventies was such a, a, a crazy time, and then even for you where you were in Harlem, right? You know, at the two eight, it just right. seems like you were at the center of the world almost. We were, you know, to be at the. If, is I wouldn't say the world. Be, I wouldn't say the world. I would say we were at the center of the city. Yeah, we were at the center of the city, and 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 let's not get this lost. It was the smallest precinct within the 77 precincts that we have. Homicide. Everything. Robberies. Re- it led in everything. Drug arrests and everything. And out of the 76, but you were the smallest. We were the smallest. Yeah. But <clears throat> what I'm striving to say here was when the people began to lash out, not in the voting booths, but when they began to lash out against the system, against the establishment... Well, with Nixon in the White House, you understand? And that was the establishment. We, as the police, represented the establishment. In what way? Well, your demonstrations, we locked you up. I mean, Columbia, the the riots, they wouldn't call it that, we locked them up. Uh, The Martin Luther King riots in Harlem, we locked them up, you know? We represented the establishment. And, you know, it's been said to death. But I have to tell you, Dion, it was a very, one more time, very thin line between, I, I don't know if it's anarchy and, 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 and law and order, or, or it was a very, very thin line. There were times that I believed, and not only me, and black police officers right with me, that we really were going to lose uh, control, if that's what it is, of, of the city of New York. Now, at that time, j- just to back that point up, and then we'll go into the, the really police work, just to back that up, at that time, I had uh, received a letter from the Secretary of uh, Defense, or the Secretary of, I, I don't know who it was, I have that letter. And with no obligations at all to the, uh, to the service, that it was n- not to be drafted or anything, I received a letter uh, asking, would I come back in to the service? I, people don't believe that. I have the letter, but I wasn't the only one. And so <clears throat> at about, you know, 31, 32 years of age, um, I went back into the service, not full-time. I went out to Fort Taunton. I took my medical. I took a test. Blah, 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 blah. They wrote to the police commissioner and said, this man is very, very, you know, necessary. We, we can really use him. I was a demolition expert. Uh, I went back to school. Uh, I, I obviously was getting paid, getting time off from the police department. And why I tell you that is to back up to back up what I have just been saying to you here on tape. And to back that up, my instructions was, and these were CIA-run classes, my instructions was how to disable a city. Hmm. I wasn't being taught uh, explosives to go over to... Vietnam to blow up a rice paddy. No, I was being taught here abutments on bridges 
elevators, how to shut a city down in case we lost it. Yeah. Now, this is the military having probably nothing to do with the New York City Police Department and the guys that I worked with, you know, and the guys that weren't going around uh, saying gloom and doom, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? And how close we came, you know, of all of these things. If they ever got uniformed, we were done for. The FLAN, which was the Puerto Ricans, firing rockets across the East River Drive at the precincts. I mean, the Black Liberation Army killing 13 cops, assassinating them, blowing up police headquarters. Uh, the Weather Underground, yeah. The Weather Underground, yeah. blowing up, blowing up, uh, you know, uh, blowing up the draft board. Yeah. Uh, uh, people blowing up abortion, abortion uh, centers. Uh, you know, we had the radical right doing that. We had the, the liberal left, you know. They, if they ever got together, you know what I mean, and all of a sudden decided to what they were going to do, that would have been a pretty scary thing. Yeah, I'm from up in New Haven, and they talk about how they, they even restructure cities. They'd build them in a case if they have to get uh, army down to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the inner exactly. city. Exactly. Exactly. They have, they have a route to go. Exactly. And, and, and in the midst of all of this, and this belongs in here, in the midst of all of the graffiti and the crime and everything, the city of New York went 36 hours to going bankrupt. Wow. The sanitation department worked for two weeks and without pay, and finally they stopped. The garbage was one and two stories high in the city, rats running, the, the, you couldn't go into the Bronx. You needed tetanus shot. And that's shots. when the Washington said, no, we're not going to bail you out. Ford. Yeah. Ford said that. Yeah. The guy by the name of Roatan and another one is the one that put it all together and bailed us out, right? Um, at that particular time, you know, we had a mayor yeah. whose only concern, only concern was no riots in my city like Chicago and Watts, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> and I'm throwing, I'm switching my parties from Republican to Democrat, and I'm entering into the Fl Florida primary in that I have a safe city. Wow. It was more than that. And this is what we went to work with every day. And... By 1973, basically at the height of it, although the Vietnam War was now, you know, Nixon gets credit for ending that thing. It would, that, that was going down. By, by 1973, they laid off 3,000 cops. And the reason they laid them off, and my brother-in-law was one of them, they laid them off is they couldn't pay them. Yeah, exactly. It was totally... Not that they didn't need them. Totally impossible. Now, if you can get that, I painted with a wide brush here, but if you can get that scenario into this story, better phrased than, than the way that, that I have put it, you can see that it, it, it goes from Washington, D.C., and let's not forget Watergate, yeah. and what, a, what a shock that was. President of the United States is going to be arrested or impeached. It was a shock. It seemed but, like the end was near. Yep. Yeah. Honest to God, it seemed like the end was near. Yeah. It seemed like the cops were saying, you know what? This is a done deal. I'm going home and take care of my family. Yeah. I'm going home and do that. Yeah. And in all of that, on the other side, you had people way out on the end of Long Island 
that belong to the John Birch Society, the IRA. These are the people that are up in Idaho now with their own government and rifles. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Militias uh, and those, you know, yeah. uh, maybe they're bringing back the swastika. You know what that yeah, is, right? Adolf Hitler and the, yeah, yeah. the skinheads and all that. And that's what we, that's how we went to work. Would you believe that the firemen would answer fires and they were being snipered? Sniper shot. Yeah. That is why, if you look at your fire engines today in the city, yeah. they're all encased. Where do the firemen ride in the fire? Inside. Yeah, inside. Nobody ride. They they always to ride outside. Then no more. They were being sniper fired. See, that's interesting. I've I've heard stories where they would tell rookies, uh, you know, if you're on the projects, don't go close to the buildings because they can drop bricks on your head. Don't don't touch. If you're going to use the phone on the, like a radio phone on the corner, make sure there's no dog shit on it. Like there's just all little things. Yeah, stuff like that. Stuff like that. We, we we knew forever. Yeah. Stuff that we didn't know. That we didn't know is uh, uh, you come up into this apartment here. Uh, we we there's a dead person in there, and they would call you eight nine o'clock at night, and you'd go in there at eight or nine o'clock at night with the door open, and you'd put that light switch on. You'd put that light switch on. The bulbs were up here. The bulbs were filled with gasoline, stones, and thing. And once you put that electricity on, goodbye, goodbye eyes, goodbye face, goodbye everything. The doors in the cars, when you stopped them, when they would open up the door, you'd pull up behind them. They would open up the door. In the door was a shotgun, and they had the triggers here, and they would pull the trigger. That was going out out, out in Oakland. So what we were up against was not some hyped up, drugged up, uh, we, we were up against the Black Liberation Army, the which basically was an army. Yeah. This is what we were fighting. And we were fighting this group when they had 30 caliber machine guns. I hadn't seen that since Korea. 30 caliber machine guns hanging out the, hanging out the door, going by the district attorney's house and shooting up those two cops with a 30 caliber machine gun. Whereas I had a five shot 38. Yeah. I mean, from... You know, after it passed the, the the length of this room, yeah, it's not no 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 good range. No. Oh, okay, yeah. So why, when I talk about what it was like being a cop, then is that there has to be for the reader, the listener, the person that I am explaining this to, there has to be that kind of an overall uh, situation in which we went to work every day and they're going to tell you yeah it was for like no pay and we didn't have flak jackets and helmets and stuff like that yeah all of that all of, all of all of that counts but if we didn't have flak jackets helmets and and we didn't have the best of weapons if we weren't going to work under those conditions we wouldn't need them so that that was like an outshoot if that is the word that was an outshoot of or uh, you know an outcome of really what was going on and of course, that got us flak jackets. That got us helmets. That got us Glocks, yeah. nine millimeter Glocks, and uh, things along the lines like that. Uh, our objective back then, Dion, our objective was basically to take one street at a time. Now, I I saw ten years ago, eleven years ago, this black man. He's my hero. This black man in Harlem was raised in Harlem. And uh, no, it's more than 10, of, 10 years ago. I just heard the story. But he decided to take Harlem back one block at a time. 
Yeah. And he started up on the Hunt 27th Street. He's doing the, he's doing the, the charter schools and stuff. There yes. you go. I know him, yes. I don't know his name, but I know, yes. And he went back. Being successful. And he got one block. He yeah. just got one block. They kept the drug addicts off that one block. Yeah. And this, they cleaned it. They painted it. They did it. And as soon as he got that block, they went to the next block. And so all of our sayings came out. They make movies about it now. All of our sayings came out. Our sayings were, you know, you give us 22 minutes, we'll give you a homicide. That was from Wins. Um, Fox started up with, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your children are? And in, in our precinct, they said, it's 10 o'clock, you know, where's the, where is the next homicide body? Um, we, we, own night. Night. That one, yeah. we own the night. We own the night. We own the streets. That's what we would do. We own the streets. We own the night. Um, those were the sayings that we had. And it, out of that bore a really, really us against them mentality. Yeah. It was us against them mentality. And you weren't an outsider. You were born in Harlem. You were raised. Oh, I knew it. I knew the street. I, I, I was so many steps in front of the guys that I worked with who were all good. Yeah. All good. Courageous. All good. But you know what? They were raised up in the outskirts of Queens. They were raised up in Huntington, Long Island. Yeah. I mean, Probably some of them, without Irish an exaggeration, town, yeah. had never seen 42nd Street. I'm, I'm married to this, uh, uh, I, I'm married to Lynn uh, close to uh, 40 years. And I mean, as far as intelligence, reading, writing, this and that and so forth and so on. But you know, Lynn, Lynn, Lynn was to the city. She was to 42nd Street maybe once or twice, or she was to the village, you know, into the village. Now, how are you going to take somebody like Lynn out of Dobbs Ferry and make them a cop and put them in the South Bronx? They yeah. eat them up. Yeah. They eat them up, you know? Yeah. Okay. At uh, 20 years of age, uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I became, uh, you know, uh, a New York City policeman. And I became a New York City policeman because when I came home from Korea, there was no jobs. And... Uh, I took, uh, we were playing stickball, I'll never forget it, and a guy came along and he had applications, and I never remember about the fire department, but I do remember, I do remember the police department, the department of parks, and the post office. Um, he said the fire department was there, but anyway, I filled all of them out, and the police department called first, and that's why. This was no such thing as growing up, looking forward, yeah. wanting to be a policeman, nope, it it, it happened like out of necessity. You went I, to, I needed a job. You went to Korea. You saw action in Korea. You were yes, at Chop Hill. Yes, you I were was. wounded. Yes, I was. And you got a Twice. purple heart. Right. And, and uh, your, 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 soul, your helmet now is on display at West Point. It, yes, it is. And that's amazing. And your parents, uh, God bless them, they thought for 36 hours you were MIA. Uh, my dad, my dad got such misinformation that... By the time it got to him, he thought I was killed. For, thir for 36 hours or no, so? No, no. For my dad, it was about 12 to 14 hours he was operating with that. But uh, yes, it wasn't until the next day that it was straightened out that uh, I wasn't missing, that I was wounded, and I, yeah, and I, but I wasn't missing. And you, you got the Purple Heart and you were finally awarded it properly in uh, November of 2009. Thanks to, thanks to Lindsay. Lindsay, your daughter, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Out of, Wrote uh, the president, oh, yeah. yeah your, your, your mother had gotten it, but you never formally got it officially. I never knew it. She put it under the <laughs> bed and hit it. I never knew it. That's I, amazing. We didn't come home and talk about it.
Wow. So, so you got back from Korea and you you you, you joined. The I got back force. from I got back from Korea, and the first thing that happened was there were no jobs. There were absolutely no jobs at all. And we belonged to a club called Twenty Six Twenty Six. We got twenty six dollars a week for twenty six weeks, and at that at at that time, which I now readily say. At that time, I began to uh, run run street numbers. I don't know if you know what that is. Yeah. It's totally illegal. People yeah. were getting arrested for it, and I was running. Uh, I was running street numbers. I then, I then went to work, and I was making very good money. I worked on the docks. Yeah. I was unloading bananas, and I was working for United Fruit. And there came an opportunity to be a uh, in Guatemala to run guns, and the, the gun running. Uh, was to I was 20 years old. The gun running was that they they, they were uh, burning and, and and looting the uh, the plantations, and so what we would do is go down there and we would actually ride around in jeeps, machine gun mounted on it. That was the gun running part of it, and <clears throat> if we were to do that, we would have to come back. I don't know why, but we would have to come back every six months and sort of swear alliance or allegiance to the United States. You know what I'm talking about? We couldn't be working for another government. We weren't soldiers of fortune. We were being hired out of uh, United Fruit, the United Fruit Company, which was the banana, which was uh, they would unload the docks down here on 57th Street. I had applied to go for uh, gun uh, for gun running uh, down down in Guatemala, and then. <clears throat> Uh, the applications came forward and I went to the police department. I never mentioned that about the, the gun running. And, and you hired out in 57 or 58? 57. 57. Yeah. Now, the police academy was three months long. There were five or six hundred uh, people uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the class at the time. I, uh, I graduated. I graduated. Uh, I graduated after three months. I was assigned to Spanish Harlem. I came home. I probably was out in the street maybe one or two weeks, no more than that. Uh, and I came home. I was living at home. And I parked my car, and it's Easter. And I parked my car, and as I parked my car, there are people running down the hill, two Spanish kids. I call them kids now. One was 16, the other one was 21. He was my age. And they're running down the hill, and I see what I call an old white guy chasing them. And the old white guy has fired a shot. And it was very, very easy, very easy for me to know that that guy, Irish, tall, running, was a cop. I, I just knew it. And they, these two, so it was like I got behind the cars, not to get in his line of fire. And he took the gun and he fired the gun. And as he fired the gun, the Spanish guy fired the gun, Dion. He, he turned around sideways. The Irish guy got to me and he wouldn't drop it and we both let it go. And um, he died in the hospital. He was 21. He died in the hospital. He was AWOL. And what happened was that the bullet hit him right in the belt buckle, an army belt buckle. And that went up into the lungs, and believe it or not, he drowned. This is the Spanish guy. Yep, the Spanish guy. Yeah. So I was a cop four months, and, you know, you're charged with murder. 
and I'm brought down before the grand jury. Were you off duty at the time? Yeah. Okay. And you're brought down before the grand jury, and you go in and you say what happens, and then the grand jury comes back with no bill. In other words, you're exonerated, so that when you leave the police force, they can't sue you. Not arrest you, but they can't sue you, which they would. So it's like it's a justifiable homicide, and they'll never forget it. <clears throat> That's to show you the cheapness of life or whatever it is. I officially had to pay six cents for the bullet that I fired. Really? We paid for it. In other words, everything is on the level. Nothing was for nothing. So, that, you know, you can't come back and sue and so forth and so on. And so that's, that was, that was, that was, I didn't even make an arrest yet. And that was the first thing that, that I had gotten into. Got a medal, got all this and was over in the 2-5. And that sort of, Dion, honestly, began to build my reputation in the 2-5 precinct. Are you still uniform at this point? I'm in uniform. 2-5 precinct. Uh, this is what gets me uh, basically promoted. I'm in the 2-5 precinct, and a man, a Greek man, has uh, up on his roof with a good rifle. He's fired. You know, in the, in the boats that go around go around the city, these boats that uh, like the take ferries? the tourists, yeah, like little like the like the ferries or whatever you call it, sightseeing. Yeah, tour. yeah. Okay, so there was a French sailor on that with a group of people. I don't know, female, other sailors. I have no idea. And he shot that French sailor, and the bullet went right through the sailor, and it went right out into the water. So the bullet was never recovered. He was dead. And so it was a big investigation and they sort of narrowed it down to this building or whatever it was and they were going through various things and I wasn't a detective. They were, I didn't even know about it. And we get a call and this guy's got the rifle and he's in the courtyard. You know how the buildings all went around like this and it's a, and he's firing in the courtyard. In the center of the... And so we go into the courtyard and we see the fire coming down the fire coming down and I'm working with guys you know and I'm not saying that uh, you know I'm much more than them but I'm, I'm really working with I, I, I'm, I'm working with guys like maybe this is their first encounter you know I sort of I sort of done nine months in combat this isn't the first time I'm being fired at you know and I'm looking out there and holy shit so I surmise what floor he's on and I go up there and in goes the door and I put my foot in the door, and my partner's behind me, and in I go, and he's there with the rifle. You know what I'm talking about? As he turns with the rifle, once again, you know, it's like, drop it, bang, drop it, bang. As I, as I go in, my partner never even fired. I caught him in the shoulder, down he went. And that's when he was charged with the Frenchman's murder. Yeah. And so, with that gun arrest, I go down to court, and I guess, um, Lynn and I were just talking about this today. I guess I'm 18 months in uniform working in Spanish Harlem. I'm working with uh, my partner, Jimmy Arricchio. And he has uh, more girlfriends than you can shake a stick at. Because as they're taking their kids to school, he's standing outside the police car saying, Is the coffee on? Is the coffee on? And sure enough, sooner or later, some of them say, Yeah, the coffee's on, you know. So um, I'm down in court with this arrest. And a captain who I've never, never known, told the story 20 times, here's 21. And uh, he came up to me and he said, uh, how old are you? 
And I said, I'm 21. I said, uh, I'm, I'm 21 years of age. How long have you been a cop? I said, about 18 months. Uh, I said, 14 months. I thought I was in trouble. And he said to me, he says, uh, uh, something about, about the arrest. He says, uh, you think you could do undercover work? And I said, yes, I can. Uh, where are you working? I said, I'm working in the 25th precinct up in Spanish Harlem and stuff like that. Okay, what's your name? Took my name, took all this down. I never even went back to the precinct and told anybody. I never did. I don't know if it was one or two days later on what they call a teletype. Up came a teletype and I went down for an interview and I went down to where, Dion, where the police museum is today and the police museum was the first precinct and that was narcotics. And I went in there and I was interviewed and mainly the interview was really about the street. You know what I'm talking about? And I was very, very leery. You, you know, you know what marijuana, you know what this is, you know what that is, and so forth and so on. And I said, uh-huh. Did you, did you ever do it? You, ever, you, you know, like, who are you? You know, who are you asking me? Okay, <clears throat> you're going to be transferred down here. And we're going to tell you what to do. And blah, blah, blah. And I was transferred down there. And... I was sent out in the street. You know, they talked to me for days. They took me out there. They sort of showed me how the operation was going and so forth. This and so is downtown. This was downtown. And I made my first, I made my first uh, narcotic buy uh, over in Alphabet City. Yeah. I was so happy. I couldn't believe it. So I wound up buying uh, mainly what they call back then in heroin, half loads, $75. You know, uh, mixed with roach powder, God only knows. And I did that for This is almost, the early 60s. Yeah, I did that for almost two years. And then, while I was doing that, up came the Patsy Fuca case. And during that time in the Patsy Fuca case, I was working on it, but I was never in the inner circle. I was more tailing, and it was boring. I tailed them to Connecticut. Now what's the Patsy Fuker case? French Connection. Ah, okay. So the Patsy Fuker case, I, I was down a little Italy. I went to Connecticut, but that's all I was doing. Yeah. That was really Sonny Grasso, Eddie Egan, who I'd been working with. I would make street buys. They would make the arrest, and they made that case. Sonny Egan turned I, out to be Popeye Doyle. It turned out to be Popeye Doyle. Yeah. So what happens is when we make that case, I mean... That's eight years away from making a movie, you know, so we made that case. And then I get, at two o'clock in the morning, I'm told to go down to the uh, district attorney's office. And I go down to the district attorney's office and I meet a Jewish cop by the name of Sharp as attack. Sharp as attack. Undercover. I didn't, he wasn't in narcotics. I didn't know what the hell he was doing. And uh, <clears throat> we are told that homosexuals are being literally pulled off the street and shook down. Don't forget, it was a time where there was very little openness about being this was gay. 1964. Oh, that time. 65. Yeah. yeah. Forget about it. Yeah. Uh, we're a ways away from. Uh, yeah. Swinging. The, the, the riot yeah. uh, of when they came out and. They, had, they said they had enough. And so we're sent down there. 
and uh, you're down to the village. You go down to the village. I know, well, over to the piers and the village, and it was a total Dion. It was a total life change for me. We we work separate. They had just they set you up with an apartment undercover. I set me up with an apartment. I had an apartment. I took care of the monies. They did all of that, and uh, it took me a, a while to get into the uh, to get into the lifestyle. But once I did, I went all the way, and I became known uh, under uh, under there as Glitter. And it was I painted a star. I had them paint the star and put some glitter here. And uh, on your face, I went to the boot. Yeah, I went. I went to Dungaree boot, red the the, the leather because that was the scene. That that took me into the Brambles in Central Park, and it took me into all of those clubs, like the underground, the gay underground of right. New York City. Yeah. But that was the violent gay underground. That was not the. Uh, on the surface, it might look like that, and I don't. You know, I I I, I don't want to paint that as you know. Uh, crazies or whatever no, it was no. but it was it, it, it was violent it, it, it was rough you now know? why is that do you think just becoming I mean, with any kind of I have no form idea of but th- and then then there was then there was the homosexual uh, uh, population that used to gather in the bar and sing Barbara Streisand songs holding together yeah. every one of them had a, a better job than the next one yeah. every one of them had a dollar every one of them dressed in a suit and tie and never caused any problems troubles or whatsoever their lifestyle was their own they had nothing to do uh, with this particular with lifestyle scene, yeah, yeah. you know uh, I, I don't know how to differentiate that you know what I'm talking about Uh I guess there's extremes without any kind of lifestyle. Of course, yeah. I, th- that should answer. Yeah. It. And so uh, I, I, I went into that. I went into that, and what I had to really ponder and think about was that the district attorney's office suspected that it was cops. So what was happening? So, the, so gay people were getting rolled for uh, they were going extortion and whatnot, or they they were being murdered as well. They got they got murdered after a while. Because of, um, and I'll tell you about that. But and this, this was we didn't want to work on cops. This ended up to be called the bag murders. It was. Yeah, this is what the, they ended up so, being called. So, okay, we said we would do it, and they were a salt and pepper team. One was black, one was white. Of the people you were looking for. Uh huh. So, we went to work. Eight months, and I was in that. I was in that lifestyle. Once a month, I would meet my boss up in the bar up in Harlem on the west side where I was a bartender, the 712. I pay homage to the 712 in my book. It was a bucket of blood. And um, so I would meet my boss up there. He'd give me money. Is there anything new to report? And he, he looked at me strange and stuff like that. And I said, you know, I, uh, all those all those years in narcotics, not even making an arrest, just making the buys and stuff. And I told him, I said, I, I forgot how to be the cop. I, I said, I mean, you know, is this never going to end or whatever it was? He says, it ends. He says, it ends when you end it. He says, they're, they're hard on us. He says, the, these are cops killing people and stuff like that. And that's the speeches I used to get. And off we went. Now, what they would do, 
is they would get these homosexuals in a compromising situation. I'll let you think about what that was. In the trucks over there on the piers. Then they would take him to the 5th precinct. And the 5th precinct had a window as big as the size of this wall. And the desk was right there. So one would sit in the car with the homosexual. The other one would go in and say to the sergeant on the desk, I'm lost. Which way is it to 6th Street? And the sergeant would say, well, you go out here and you go down here. You give him directions. And he would come back out and say, okay, he's, he's going for it. That's going to cost 50 bucks. Just try to imagine what 50 bucks, that's like 500 today, yeah. okay? And they would keep the guy all night. They would go into court and they would find any court that was open down there and they would take the guy with them into court and one of them would go to the front of the court and he would say to the court officer, is John Smith on the calendar? And the court officer would look around and say, no, he's not, not here. Maybe he's up in another place. They come back and say to the guy, okay, that's, that's 50 bucks. But b- before it was over, the places that they took, the, and they weren't cops, and before, the, b- before it was all over, this guy was going for two, $300. Now, there's no ATM card. They actually took the guy to the bank. And a lot of times, the parent would have to show up, or the mother or the father, to extract this money out of the bank. They would take it, and off they would go, and they're working on the next one. For all I know, they did five of them or they did 150 of them. I have no idea. But since the gay community thought it was cops, they went to the district attorney's office. And the district attorney's office found two cops that they could trust. And there was probably 500 others, but they called us. And that's how, and that's how we really got got on this case. And of course, hard work, and it, that's all it was. No genius or nothing. Just hard work, hard work. And one night while in there, living that life, meeting the guy down the hall, this, that, and so forth and so on. And he had said to me, look, you know, don't get caught because there's two cops out there and this is what they're doing. And I said, really? You know? And... He gave me the whole scoop, and that's how I knew this whole scenario. And I don't know, a month later, two months later, I reported it to the boss. And so the boss says, they are fucking cops. They are cops. Right after that, I saw them. I saw them. I saw them get get in the car, take the guy in the car. And what I did do was take the plate number in case I lost them. And I ran like a son of a bitch for my car. I ran as fast as I could, running for my car. A lot of other guys were running too because they were afraid that these guys were going to do it. And I got in my car and I I couldn't find them. I had the plate number. And then I said, wait a second. And I remembered what the guy told me. And boom, I went over and sat in the precinct. As I got over to the precinct, I was able to get to a phone and I called the number that they gave me. I'd never called it before. I called that number and I said, I think I got something. Come on over to the 5th precinct. Son of a bitch, as the, the boss himself pulled up, here these guys were walking down the block 
to the fifth precinct to do their scam. I said, there they are. And over we went. And the homosexual guy was screaming, screaming. And of course, they were making him the complainant. And he, there was no way he was going to go to court. Yeah. Uh, we were in big trouble. In the meantime, because they had gone to the DA's office, those that went to the DA's office, I don't know who they are, never figured it out, but they began to disappear. And they found body parts floating in the river, in the garbage cans, left around so that these people, I guess, could see it. And that's how the bag murders, and we never convicted them for that. No. No, we never did. We got them seven years or so for all the extortion and shakedown. It really got them, got them good. Yeah. And they actually had a job, if you want to believe this. Their job was to patrol the rivers up and down. That job was created during the Second World War as soon as they found a German submarine. Yeah, just to make sure no spies were coming up. There you go. And they never did away with the job. And these guys... For 20 years after... They're still, they're, searching. they're still doing that. And then so in any case, yeah. The, the, the gay guys and of course, there. Of course, I would say, I would say about 30 hours, 36 hours after that, I was promoted. And I wasn't publicly promoted because I'd been undercover now three years. Three years. And so I, I went down and I picked up my gold shield. I picked it up, okay, and... I was assigned to the 26th precinct. And you made a detective? Yes, which is not going to work out. Now, that ended up being the movie Cruising, but yes, before that, there was a side little story, which I've heard here. While you were while you were undercover, you were told, and you didn't want to, that you had to go arrest somebody in Cafe Alagogo. Was that during this time? Absolutely. You had to, you had to go in and, and almost break cover. Two o'clock in the morning... Two o'clock in the morning, we had to go to the DA's office. And the DA's name was Najari. And he later would head up a special prosecutor's office. He became sort of powerful in that special prosecutor's office. That was the first time ever it was ever put up. So I go over there, and it's two o'clock in the morning, and they said, we have this complaint from the Greenwich Village uh, community and I'm assuming it's about the killings. And he says, uh, you have to wear a wire, and I'll never forget this, you have to wear a wire. It's bad fucking enough you got us working on cops, for Christ's sake, and now you want us to wear a wire to boot? You know, only rats and stoolies wore wires, you know? Yeah. And, and I always said to them, you know I did not come on this job, you know, to sweep the floor, sweep the brooms as they had some. I didn't come on this job to do that, and I didn't come on this job to arrest other cops. That's not what I came on this job for. We know all about it. <clears throat> um, but you're going to wear a wire. There's a guy that's performing a lewd and indecent act, and he's up at the Agogo. We're now working on what they call cuppies. Circumstances undetermined pending police investigation. Because they didn't know how these people died. You found an arm. They could have been shot, stabbed. Even even the head. 
I mean, well, just if his head's cut off. Yeah, but he could have been. He could have been dead. He could. You, you did not have a, a COD, cause. A cause know. of death. Yeah, yeah. You did not. Yeah. So they were called cuppies, and we're working on this, and they're taking us up to go to work in some club. Some club, and the risk was. Well, you know what? <clears throat> we're undercover. If people see us up there, and but you know what? So what if they did? You know, we would just pretend to be, you know, gay guys anyway, going up in there. So we go up there wearing the wire, and Professor Irwin Corey is in a diaper, in a playpen about the size of this, and spitting and doing this, and he's like the warm-up. We go in there. It's the Agogo. Place is packed. And <clears throat> see, back then, you... Um, you went to these places and you literally brought in some stuff. You could bring wine, you could do this and so forth and so on. Although they had a they had a license. So we go in there and out comes Lenny Bruce and he's doing his act and he's doing all the words. And you know, <clears throat> Dion, I grew up with George Collin. Yeah. George Collin and I, to the day that he died, friends very very close so Lenny Bruce is doing this I mean lewd I, di I didn't know what was lewd Professor Erwin Corey was lewd if you ask me <laughs> but he's using language and this and that and everything else and the one thing that surprised me was and I don't know why but he was Jewish and what Jewish people can't act that way or whatever it is I, I, was, I was quite surprised you know and I said, I said, he, <laughs> don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> so, well, we finished with the wire. And I'm not sure who, which one of us wore the wire. Because I know we went back the second time. Because well, you got back in the wire. It didn't, they get couldn't it, record it. They couldn't record it. They couldn't take it out. And this took a couple of weeks. Every time you wear a wire, they it wouldn't it would be all garbled. Some, something. So they call us back up to the office, and we figured, you know, this is it. You know, bop, bop, bop. Nice job. You got to go back. So we go back because the woman can't transcribe it. The woman can't transcribe it. And we're virtually like, I don't know which one, but holding the microphone, <laughs> you know, telling people, shh, you know, we, we got to hear this or whatever the hell it is. And I don't want to take all the credit for this, but I spotted the console that was running reel to reel. So before the act was over, before it was over, come on. And we left and we went back down to the district attorney's office and they said, what, well, he didn't work there? I said, look, this is what we saw. We saw this reel to reel that was running. Oh, okay. So they're you know, taping the show. The, the, the they club were itself. taping it. Yeah. yeah, okay. So Dion, <clears throat> now it it's up upon us to keep continuity since we saw it and stuff that they give us what they call a ducus tecum. That's a, a summons. So we go up there and we seize the tape. Big tape like this. Come running back to the district attorney's office, right? Give them the tape. Goodbye, so long, you got it. And we go back to doing what we're doing. The working. bag murders, yeah. The bag murders. We yeah. go back working. Ah, three days, get a call. 
come back. And we come back, Dion. And you know what? They don't have the equipment. They don't they don't have the equipment to play the thing. You can't play the, the quarter inch or no. whatever of inch they, tape they it was. Yeah. They couldn't do it. They go back to the place. We refused. No. We're not going up there and we're, and we're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. We're, we're not gonna do it. You gotta work out another way, go up there, play the tapes up there, do whatever you're gonna do. And they said, Well, here's what you do have to do though. You have to go back up there and you have to give these people summonses. It was the husband and wife. What are we giving them summonses for? Who own the place. Yeah. Keeping and maintaining. Keeping and maintaining what? A lewd and indecent act. A and P. Allowing and permitting. So we went up there, we gave them that, and they mocked the they mocked the the console. The console down as evidence not to be destroyed and stuff like that. These people I thought that these people were old. This was a disgrace of what we're doing. Of course, these people are 55, 56, 57. You know, the, the, I'm 26, 27, so I thought that these people were old, and it was a today, oh boy. Yeah. So in it, so sure enough, they did it. They seized the console and you I, and, and, and Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce, we go, we don't exactly affect the arrest, but there are detectives that have now have the case, Lenny Bruce, but it's us that's going to go on trial. It's us that's going to testify and so forth and so on. So technically, I locked up Lenny Bruce. Okay, it's your turn, you know, because I would take an arrest and then he would take an arrest while we were doing cruising. Okay. So I went to court exactly twice. And the first time that I went to court, if you want to believe this, the judge put everybody out of court because of the way Lenny Bruce was dressed. He didn't like the way he was dressed. Yeah. You've got to come, show respect, you got to do this. We came the second time and Lenny Bruce was, uh, Lenny Bruce was uh, somewhat dressed and I'll never forget it. He said that he intended to defend himself, that he was going to do this and he was going to need time to study up on this and study up on that and the court was beside itself and they... They gave him that time. And in the meantime, the Agogo, which he still appeared in, lost its liquor license. You couldn't get in the place. They were now charging $10 to get in, $5, whatever it was to get in. Oh, my God, the lines were packed. The place became, if not infamous, famous. For yeah, crazy. a lot of people jungling oh there. Oh, my God, everybody started. There, yeah. They all started going there. Yeah. And so by the time it was time for us to go back to court, on my complaint, on my arrest, the answer, you know, how, how, how was this adjudicated? And on there they put abated by death. So Lenny Bruce died. No deed. And that was it. Yeah. I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, the state of New York pardoned Lenny Bruce and George Collin in the Chicago Tribune had two columns, which I have it. My dear and dearest friend, uh, Randy Jurgensen, who locked up Lenny Bruce. Could you believe he locked up Lenny Bruce? Well, Randy, swear to God. Well, <laughs> Randy, he's now been pardoned, so I guess he did beat you. And of course, I told the reporter back, 
tell George, give me a break here. I didn't do it. <laughs> the complainant was the people, the people in village. But George and I had that running thing. Yeah. In fact, it's in Georgie Collins' book. Yeah. So, yes, that's what it was. Then I became a detective. And real short, I went to the 26th precinct where I was born and raised. And Dion, this is all in my book. And when I was a kid, 11 and 12 years of age, I worked for a grocery store. And what I would do is go in the grocery store after school, and there were all cardboard boxes lined up with the address in there. And yes, there were beer. There was beer in there. I was 11 and 12. Nobody cared. You just picked it up and you delivered, you delivered it. And so, a couple of times, cops that I knew, and they were called the Ute Squad, I'm not going to call their name, two Irish guys, and they would stop me and they would take the beer for themselves. And they took other stuff out of the groceries. They just, they just took it out. Scared that, I was 11, 12, scared me. And of course, I 13, 14, 15 in the neighborhood, they would come after you when you're playing stickball and stuff. So I knew them and they knew me. Or at least they knew me that way. That They, they stole this beer. And I used to go back and tell, tell the, the guy that I was working for. And he said, hey, look, as long as, as long as they took the beer, he says, if you're giving it to you, 12 years old. He, he never even finished the sentence. Yeah. So I go into the 26th precinct. I'm now a detective. I'm there three days. And they're introducing me around, and there's a far room in the back where the youth squad is. And I walk in there, and there they're, they're, they're sitting in there. And I, I swear, it just, it, it just raged back in me, and I said, you son of a bitch. And he said, who are you talking to? And I said, I'm talking to you, you son of a bitch. And I'm, I'm working with a guy by the name of Mike Graham. Him, his name I'll call. And Graham says to me, what, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? And I said, you son of a bitch, do you remember me? You used to steal from me. Well, guess what? He got up and I, I went right at him. The other guy was standing over there and I didn't recognize him, but it was his partner. It was still... I must have had 30 years on the job. And I, I went at him, and Graham was pulling me back. And they pulled me out of the office, and I said, this is not over with. This, I, this is not over with. We can take it in the street. We can finish it here. And Graham said, you're going to get the rest. What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, of course, the lieutenant heard about it, and I got a fort with. Fort with into his office blah, 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 what stays in here, stays in here, blah, 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 this is it, so forth and so on, beep it about, about, and you're being transferred. And I said, uh, uh, I'm being transferred? I, I knew I was going to get transferred anyway. Can't work in the neighborhood where you grew up. I don't know who sent me there. So, yeah, you're being transferred. He says, you're going over to the 28th precinct. And that was, at that time, it was a bucket of blood. Oh, and I knew this was punishment. They call it the and murder factory. Murder factory. Zone six. So I get transferred over to the to the two A precinct. Three days later, I look up, and here comes Graham into the twenty eight precinct because he was there because he was my partner. They asked him to, and they sent him to the twenty eight precinct. 
And I said, look, Mike, I don't know how to make it up to you. I said, I don't know how to make it up to you and everything like that. And he says, the best way you can make it up to me is to stay there away. Stay away from me. Guess what? We wound up working together. We wound up, we became such friends. It always ties in somehow or the other. So that was the start of the 28th Precinct. Now, was that around this time where you, um, Albert Victory? Is that, is that around 68? Albert Victory is 1968. I'm in the 2-8. Yes, I am. Not just before the Martin Luther King riots. And the city was so out of control. All the things that I said at the beginning of the tape. Yeah. 2,000 murders a year. Ted Offensive. Uh, you, were you, were you, were you a homicide? Uh, I was detective. a homicide detective. So you, now. you were doing 75 homicides a year you'd work? No. About that? No, no. <clears throat> There were over a hundred homicides, and I probably had, personally, I probably was doing in the neighborhood of 15 to 18 a year, because I had mine, my partner Ambrose had his, and we worked in teams of three, I think Graham was gone by then, and whoever the third guy was. So, we would always average out somewhere between eight homicides a year when you consider you consider our own but I worked on the other ones and I locked them up and testified for them so we yeah I was doing about I was doing about 25 homicides a year and if you figured Dion I did 15 years there you know I, I did 400 homicides I locked up 400 people or took part in locking up 400 people and they were averaging out between 7 to 10 years apiece except for the ones that kill cops. Now this is one question I do want to ask you which sure. I, I think is very fascinating. Uh, it sadly has become a cliche to me in, in, in literary fiction and in certainly police movies but I'm fascinated by the duality for a police officer. For someone like you who say you live, you, you have a family and you have the family life, and then you have to compartmentalize what you do on the street and try not to bring it home with you. Oh, you don't? But at the same time, you have to, as soon as you, you, you told me that when you would take the Sawmill Parkway, when you get at the booth. He'd get out. Yeah, that, that, the evil would get out, you come it home. Was, and it was evil. And then when you come back, when you get in the car, go back down get and get car. back in. No surprises, get back in here. And it seems so hard. I had the ability. I really did. But a lot of people I didn't can't. smoke. I didn't drink. I could come home and Lynn would have this thing all rest and stuff like that. And I could come home like I directed traffic. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, how you doing? Or I was in a parade. And a lot of less people that ruin marriages, alcoholism, like you said, <sighs> drug addiction. Suicide. Suicide. Yeah, of course. Suicide. No, I never. Uh, I, I, I never contemplated something like that. Um... I experienced a lot of, um, I guess, you know, you could say, I guess I could reach an age where I could say I was really uh, uh, disappointed. Let's say, not disappointed in the human race, but disappointed in in man. You know, in, in man, I mean, life was so cheap. I mean, you know, we... We, we we just killed everything in Korea. If it was a leaf and it looked up, we killed it. You just and and now you know here, two thousand homicides a year in New York City. 
2,000, break that down to 12 months. To break it down, you know what? how many that is? Life is cheap. And you see And everything. you don't know how. Oh, my God. And you don't know. You don't know. Here's what the scary part is. The scary part is, is that when you walk into the scene of a homicide and it no longer affects you, you're gone. Something's wrong. I'm telling you. Maybe the alcohol is the buffer or whatever it is. Something, something's gone. It's almost like there's a piece and there's just so many pieces. You know what I'm talking about? I've never been able to express that. And the one that I will never forget, I never talked about it until a few years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was. And I pretty near tell Lynn uh, a lot of things that I won't tell the children. But I had one where Otis Redding and it was hot, hot as hell. And Otis Redding was 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 singing in the dock of the bay, and we were in, the, in 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 a building to where the building was right alongside of us. All the windows were open, and this song was bouncing through the alleyways. And I'm coming up the stairs. I was working with Ambrose, best black cop I ever worked with, and. I'm coming up the stairs and the sergeant is coming down. I, that sergeant's still alive today. And he goes like this. And he was shaking. Like, and to me, you know, I got three. And it's my turn. And so he showed you. The, the he number, went like this. Number you know, three. And we were going up. And, you know, the cops were on this, like, the second floor and they were they were smoking as usual, you know. And they're trying to talk about something else or whatever it is and the smell of the garbage and the, the, the drug addicts, the needles, the blood. And it's Beirut. And so I'm, I, I go walking in the apartment. I'll never forget. It was a long, it was a long, long apartment. Like walking a locomotive up. style. I I, like, exactly. Or, yeah. And the guy was laying face down. Only had pants on, had, had no jacket. And the shotgun blast had caught him all in the back, all up in here. Back of the head. Back, yeah, but back, back in the back and the back of the head. And you could see from the blood spatter that he was like shot here, but the shotgun carried him in such a way that the blood spattered all along. It, it m- might have driven him about four feet, maybe m- maybe more. To the left. It just, yeah, it just carried him down the hall. And at the end of the hall, right at the end of the hall, just before you made a turn to go into the bedroom, his teeth were embedded in, in the wall. So in other words, the shotgun hit him. He had false teeth. He took the teeth right out of his mouth and embedded it in the wall. The teeth were sticking out crooked. And so now I go past there, dock of the bay, loud as hell. I go past there and now she's in the room and she got it in the back. She got it in the back. I mean, it just, she was way lighter than him. It just blew her all apart. And as as they blew her apart and turned her sideways into the next room, there was a crib and the kid was maybe three and the kid was sitting in the back corner of the crib, sitting just like this and the kid's eyes were wide open and there they were in him. That was the three. The pellets. Yeah, he was dead. Yeah. They, they were all dead. Flies. And I walked past that room and I went to the alleyway like to catch, to catch my breath just to catch my breath, and, Am- and, and I'll never forget Ambrose saying, come on, we've seen enough, come on. And uh, I was standing there, and Otis Redding was singing Dock of the Bay. If you think I can hear Dock of the Bay yeah. <laughs> 30 years later, and that is as vivid as I... But it had an effect, you know? 
And I learned after a while, I would go into the room, because most of it wasn't in the street, it was in the apartments and stuff. I would go in, and the first thing that I would do is I would walk in, and there would be cops, and maybe they, they were the medical exam. No, he never beat me there, but, they, they, and, I, and, and I used to say, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And, they, you know, the, the cops that knew me used to say, Randy, we, we know you that. I said, I didn't do this. That's it. What do you got? And ba 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 take my notes, ba 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 And there was only one that I didn't, I didn't make, I didn't collar up. No, there were several, but one personally for me. And that was a woman, and um, she was stabbed multiple times. He tried to hack her head off from the back. He couldn't get through the bones. And she was black. She was laying there. And the kid was over in the corner. And I couldn't believe that when they called up and told me I had a homicide and that there was a kid there too, it took me five, six, seven minutes. And when I got there, the kid was still sitting there. I went at those cops like there was no tomorrow. There were roaches on her. The kid, you could see the roach bites on the kid. The kid was crying. Then he would stop crying. And I said, get this kid out of here. Get, call an ambulance. You know, but the cops were like, they didn't want to touch the homicide scene because they were taught to do that, you know? And uh, I never got him. I I, I, I I never got him. He ran. I never caught him. What year was that? Uh, I can't remember. Late 60s? Uh, all has to be in the yeah. 60s and 70s for me. Yeah. And I, I, I never got him. But you were able to successectfully carmentalize it. Where you wouldn't, you wouldn't. Uh, I never, it wouldn't I have, never did. It wouldn't. Have. I never did. My sister started a scrapbook, and then uh, Lynn p- uh, picked up, uh, and my sister kept it for years. And my uh, th- then uh, Lynn picked up the scrapbook, and Lynn was doing it. And there's a lot of letters in there, and there's a lot of pictures in there, and there's headlines in there, and stuff like that. But there's a lot of letters in there, and for all of these years, and all of these years, and all the stories that I told. And then finally, I can't remember, Lynn began to read some of the letters and she said, how come you never told me about that? that?" And it was this guy I locked up that repeatedly raped a 19-month-old baby. I said, Lynn, you really expect me to send a mixed company to talk about this? And then that's when Lynn began to see the dark side. And there is a big dark side, you know? Now, this guy, Walter Kirkland, that I, I, uh, I, that I worked with, Walter Kirkland, right? Mm-hmm. Three years ago. Committed suicide. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know... It still gets to you. Oh, it's not going it, to... It's really not going to get me. I mean, yeah. I got Lindsay. What are you kidding yeah, me? Of course. Of course. <laughs> and none of, that, none of that's going to happen. But you were able to su- successfully deal with it where you'd be able to. I, I, I really did. I don't know how. I was just able to. Um, I, I, I never broke down at home. I, I, I never brought it at home. Um, I, 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 I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't do it. It was, it was something that I never wanted Lynn or my family to even see, to even know about, uh, you know, I, I, I sheltered them as, as truly best I could. But, you know, the stories get out, you know, we went to functions and they, they hear this. Dion, yesterday I went to the anniversary of the 
killing of the two cops of 40 yeah. years ago. Uh, I brought that, 40 years that ago. in the paper yesterday. Now, I worked on that, that case. Was January of 72. I worked on that case for three months. And what happened at the end of three months? The mosque. So yeah. the mosque happened. So I was taken off that case and I was given the mosque. Rocco Lurie and, and uh, Foster. Gregory Foster, yeah. Yeah, Vietnam veterans. Silver From Star holders. Ninth Precinct. Yep, Ninth Precinct. Unbelievable. Mutilated. And that was in that was yeah yesterday as we're recording this was the uh, 40th anniversary then. yeah and I went yeah, yeah I, I I went down there believe me the police commissioner Randy it's 40 years ago I said yeah it is because yeah. he showed up at the scene too I said yep it, it it's 40 years ago I said you know something he says I probably don't I said you know we never called it up on that and he says no I know it we got them for other things but we never. Never collared up, never collared up on that. Yeah. And now, he reminded me, which I'm living it, uh, this April is going to be 40 years since the mosque happened. For your book. This yeah. is going to be huge. Yeah. Motorcycles. It's good. It's just, it already, yeah. uh, of, of where, of, of really where it's going. Now, you, that, that is like, that, that is like a military life. That is like a, 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 a policeman's, uh, you know, a policeman's life. And right in there, starting in 1971, they write a book, and it's called The French Connection. And suddenly the book is picked up to be a movie. There's a tremendous amount of history, how it was turned down, uh, how, how, Anybody that may be interested in, 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 in films coming from the 70s and, and they know all about The Godfather, they know all about The French Connection. The first person that was selected to be Popeye, Eddie Doyle, was Jimmy Breslin, the writer from The Daily News. Now, what I wanted to say to you, Dion, and I've gone, I think, the right way about it. The 70s, the late 60s and the 70s was probably... If you want to call it exciting, it's fine. But it probably was one of the most tumultuous times in the city of New York as far as crime, as far as as far as anything in the city. Going broke, whatever it was. Demonstrations, civil rights, uh, wh wh whatever it was. Watergate, whatever you can think of. It seems like the, everyone thought the 60s was going to bring us some sort of change, but then when the 60s bottomed out into the 70s, they realized there wasn't a change, and then the 70s begot this. Now, the 60s, you know, like for me, 1959, because I'm so deep and big into, you know, you know, Four, four black guys standing up, a cappella singing, yeah, doing that. Doo-wop yeah. doo doo is, and Lynn, like doo-wop is, is it yeah. for me. And, and you know, when the Big Bopper and Richie Valens and them, when they, when they died, you know, it was really put into song, right? The day the music died. 59, that killed it to me because the 60s actually came with the Beatles, the, 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 sound, the wall of noise, you know, Phil Spector, and all that music came on there. And so, believe it or not, 1969, of course, I went to Woodstock, and that was the end of it because Altima and the rest of them, they killed it. They yeah. started the drugs. You know, Jimi Hendrix is going to, yeah. So 59 ended one era for me, 69 ended another era for me. And in, and, in, the 70s. In, in, in the 70s, I, I believe the 70s, we went off the map with disco. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I didn't hear disco was the, the American, the, 
oh, the, the national anthem. Yeah. They might have done that in disco. You <laughs> name it, they did everything that. disco. MacArthur's Park is, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. But, so, the 70s, the 70s was like the pinnacle. It really was. It wasn't going to get any higher than, than the 70s because if it did, I mean, that would be the end of it. And looking back, and it's not looking back today, looking back 10, 12 years ago, everybody who knows anything about filmmaking or movie going will tell you that some of the greatest movies were made. The freedom that the directors and everybody had was in the 70s. The Godfather, The French Connection, you name it. Cruising, Serpico. Those are only police movies. But the 70s, some great, great, great movies were made in the 70s because there was this, I guess they had finally broken the studio yeah, system. system Independents were yeah. really coming up. We lost the Hayes Code, went away. The Hayes Code went away. Yeah. Absolutely. The 70s, I mean, it just, that was it. it the young it, generation of filmmakers Oh my God, out. the 70s, they they were just, they, they hell-bent, they went for it. I mean, you had they, you had people like Willie, Billy Freakin, who was probably 20, 31 years of age, making that film. Boys in the Band, The Exorcist, The French Connection, uh, Brinks, uh, great, great movies. Then you go to... Um, not Scorsese, the other guy, uh, The Last Picture Show. Yeah. Then you go to Coppola, The yeah. Godfather, One, uh, 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 the, the Apocalypse or whatever. Uh, you, yeah, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, and the yeah. other one with Gene Hackman. where uh, the, the Conversation. The conversation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. These were groundbreaking great course, movies. Yeah. So I was part of the police department, you know, a part of the city of New York when... Whatever was it, that was it. And I was also very much a part of the 70s when the movies, that was it, that was it. You know, uh, do you know what I mean by yeah. that? So I got called down as a technical advisor to work on the French Connection. And what we were doing was scouting locations. And I immediately, I immediately knew the real life, R-E-A-L. I did not know R-E-E-L. I did not understand it. I, di I don't know how they filmed out of sequence. It didn't make any sense to me. <clears throat> I thought it was, how can you, bop this, that, and everything else. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't believe that uh, when they were making, uh, making a movie, the slightest detail had to be exactly right. It really did. There was a saying then, well, if they're looking at that, they're not looking at the movie. The director didn't want to hear that. They, you know, it's th that's the way it's going to be. I mean, uh, I did Brinks. I did the movie Brinks, I believe, in 1977. And Billy Freakin actually found the real safe from the 40s that these guys stole the money out of in Boston. He found that safe in Minnesota. Do you know that that safe was bought, taken down? Out the front of it was yeah. bought, taken down, flown by cargo plane into uh, into uh, into Boston, and it was put up. Okay. It was real. The location that we filmed Brinks in, that's the location that it happened. It had turned into a factory. He turned it back into... 
He insisted that there were going to be roof shots. We were going up on the roof to film. And guess what he saw up there? He saw television antennas. There was no television in the 40s. You know how many hundreds of antennas had to be taken down? The people had to be paid? Yeah. So this was the part I found it fascinating, challenging. I, no matter what, I, I said, wow. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That, was, that was the filmmaking. And I came into this business working on pictures where I found my name mentioned at the Academy Awards by Gene Hackman into 30 million people or whatever it was. You know, after the French Connection, when it was a movie and it was Sonny Grasso, Eddie Egan, myself, Dick Oletta, so help me to God, we were rock stars. Yeah. And I don't use that term loosely. We were rock stars. We made an arrest uh, a narcotic arrest, seven or eight guys, and we brought them down to the pens down at the tombs, and we put them in the pens with, with, with the others, and we were out in the court, and there was a whole big noise back there, and we went running back along with the guards that take care of it, the correction guards, and we got back there. Some guys were bloody and this and that and everything else. And they're telling you. And that's the way that they were arguing. What the hell's going on here? And the, the one guy stands up and says, who the hell they think they are? They think they're better than us because they're locked up by the French Connection cops. You know, we could get locked up by the French. They were celebrities. The French Connection cops locked these guys up and they were telling the other guys, yeah, we, we locked up by, we're locked up by the French Connection cops. That's the effect that it had. It was almost, I'm telling you, we became like rock stars. We couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything. Yeah. I remember one night we went into the Copa. Oh, we got a standing ovation in the Copa. Bobby Darren, it's unbelievable. Yeah. That's really what happened. And so, is that the impact it had on me? No, I got to tell you the truth, it did, and on Sonny neither. No, that was not the impact. The impact it had on me was the fascination and the challenge, and I should put this first, the paycheck. Wow, the paycheck. I could make, we, will get, we got paid every two weeks. As a police at, officer. As a police officer. Yeah. In one day, yeah. in five or six hours, I could make that check. On a movie set. Can you imagine working five and six and seven days straight? So I found a way that if I was working days and the camera was working nights or vice versa, because I could make my own hours basically, as long as I did my job, I was there all night and I never took away from the job all day. Yeah. Or I was there. That's not an exaggeration. Any lost time I had, I took it. My vacations, and we'll tell you, I took a two-week vacation to work on The Godfather. Yeah. And then, when I saw that it was going even further, I came back to work for one week and took another two weeks. My vacation, because you get a month, yeah. was gone. Yeah. Was gone. For that year, yeah. Right. Yeah. But stayed working to, to work on the Godfather. And you killed Sonny. Yeah. It always was the paycheck. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. But it was the fascination. Now, when it came to acting, they used to say to me, how could you do that? Um, I very rarely missed the line. Um, I didn't have any problems. Um, 
there could be lights and people and stuff along the lines like that. And when I sat in that chair, or wherever I was sitting while I was doing the acting, I said, if I make a mistake, right, people will rush forward. I'm exaggerating. Powder my nose. The girl would come up and say, no, Randy, here's the line here. This is what you have to say. And powdering my nose, the director would walk up and say, you okay? You, can, can we do it again? Totally supportive. Everybody was there. If I was working with, a, uh, with another actor, you know, he would look at me and he would say, you know, like in other words, I'll give you the sign of when you're, you're not going to step on my line. Nothing but total and complete cooperation. So I said, this is nothing. Compared to what? Compared to when I sat in a court and I was trying to put away people that killed people and all I needed to do was make a mistake and they would fly and pounce and persecute you and, and instead of the jury being on my side, now the jury, what kind of a dumb cop is this? So, I, and there was nobody there to help me. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? So the transition not, was easy. You know how much testimony I had to give and before the grand jury and testifying in an open court and with people looking at me, looking to kill me and everything else. It, you know, and if I could get through that, if I could have a woman lawyer by the name of Enid Gerling while testifying in these, in these cases, in the, in the gay cases, uh, that she would, uh, uh, you were there, yeah, you were there, yeah, you were, she'd walk away from me and she would turn and say, isn't it a fact you're a homosexual? The court would go like this. The DA would say, I object. And the judge would say, you can't do that. And I mean, everybody's looking at me. So finally, when she did it about the third time, like in the third trial, because she would do it all the time, and I knew her. I liked her. I finally said to the judge, I said, I want to get on record here. I want to answer, no, I'm not a homosexual. And the judge says, okay, you know, it's irrelevant. And I swear, you know what I said to the judge? To you. <laughs> and, and then, you know... So with all of that going on and the other things that I used to do with interrogation, I was famous for, you know, going to the 138th Street Bridge and I would buy fruit or a watermelon, small cantaloupes, and I would bring a witness over there or, or bring a guy that I knew that did the killing and I would stand and, and we had our conversation and then I would drop stuff into the water or I try to hit the side of the pile with the tomato and you know you know <clears throat> and I'd say well, let's go back and let's try it again you know then we would go back into the precinct and I would sit down and I'd say now isn't it a fact come on tell me the truth you didn't mean to kill this guy yeah I did it I I I I I, I, I killed this guy you know but, but, but. it was <clears throat> in the Moss case I had a witness we had him on tape, but he would not tell the district attorney. And the DA said to me, you know, Randy, I, you know, I've had it with this guy. It's an hour in there. I told the guy, I said, get in the car. Get in the car. I took the guy out in the car. I went to 180. I stopped at a grocery store. I took the guy to 181st Street Bridge, which goes over to Major Deegan. Yeah. And I bought cantaloupe and tomatoes and stuff. And I said, come here. Come here. He's dead now. I says, come over. Look. Look over here. And he was looking back and forth. And I said, no, that's going to happen. I said, watch this. And I let the tomato go. Splash! I said, wow. I said, look at that. 
And then I let the cantaloupe go and it exploded. I said, now we're going to go back to the district attorney's office. I says, I want you to remember this. I said, but as soon as you get to the district attorney's office, forget it. And just cooperate with the guy. We went back into the district attorney's office. About an hour later, the district attorney came out to me and said, I can't stop him. I, I can't <laughs> stop him. So with things like that, yeah. shooting this guy, shooting that guy, working on here, you know, the French Connection, slowly you become to like get a title which... I, I, you know, okay, I don't even talk about it. I don't even say, there is not a time that you're not going to see the newspapers write me up, legendary detective Randy Jurgensen. That, to a degree, it's what it's built on, if you know what I'm talking about. And you know what? I work with guys that were even better than me, and they never got that kind of recognition. I worked with guys that did just as good a job, never missed a beat. That, that you know, you know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Things along the lines like that, and and but because they didn't work the French Connection, I guess they didn't get this or get the other yeah, thing. Notoriety. But I sort of built my, I built my reputation. And one reputation that I had that I'm proud of, is that if you worked with me, if you worked with me, you were going to get promoted. Yeah. And any time that it came time for writing up for the medals and stuff like that, I stopped. I wrote it up for uh, for my partner. You know, after forty some odds, I stopped. I I you know just to get them get get them promoted. You know, they never forgot it. Bosses never forgot it. Yeah. So it's things like that that sort of builds up your reputation. I didn't know it at the time, Dan. I I just did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. I wasn't working towards being called a legend or whatever. You, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? But it just happened that way. It just. You know, it just happened that way. And also, I lucked out with working with detectives, partners, even when I was in uniform, they just turned out to be the best. You know what I'm talking about? And believe me, working with Ambrose all those years, I didn't teach Ambrose anything. I learned from Ambrose. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And it was very difficult to be a black cop in Harlem at that particular time, the names that he was called and stuff like that, you know? There's a, there's a detective series that I really like by an author, Chester Himes, and he had, it was called The Harlem Cycle, and he wrote it in the 50s, and he had two black detectives, Coffinette and Gravedigger Jones. Okay. And, and it was very much like that, that world back then of how, how crazy and how weird it must have been, especially if you were you know, a black cop in the time. But sort of, you know, like the 50s, the 50s, uh, you know, the, look, okay, in the 50s, you know, Chinatown was loaded, for God's sake, with uh, opium. Harlem, Harlem, honest to God, wasn't the only place, but Harlem was loaded with heroin and stuff like that. But you know what? This is the way that it was. The 60s... Opened it all up. Is, well, well, when white America decided, you know, to put it up their nose and, and start doing it out, all out and so forth and stuff like that... And that's when all of this burst on there. Yeah. You know, Dean, um, Eddie Egan uh, made the first LSD uh, uh, collar, and we didn't know what it was. And Popeye Doyle, yeah. Yeah, we didn't know what the hell it was. Wow. But we saw Columbia students ingesting it with eyedroppers like this, yeah. dropping it in their eyes. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that you couldn't understand about those students doing something like that, or Mark Rudden them making bombs and having the riot... 
Their fathers saved this world. Yeah. Their fathers were the Second World War that Tom Brokaw winds up calling the greatest generation. Yeah, and these so. were the kids of the greatest generation. How could they be? You know, we, we, we just didn't do it. But I want to tell you right now, the police department of the 60s fell behind. And in my time, right, never caught up. It never caught up. I like to say in the 60s, <clears throat> certainly in the 70s, with what was going on, anybody, I don't care what age you are, the 60s, everybody's heard about it. Yeah. Everybody. It feels good, drop out, do it. You know, everybody heard about the, the 60s. Kent State, everything that really happened in the 60s, right? And we were working at a station houses that were built in the 30s, Remington typewriters from the 40s, but the most damaging thing was we were being led in the 60s and 70s by bosses, superior officer, policymakers who were still in the 50s. Can you get that? Yeah. Father, that father knows best? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Sneakers? What you, dungarees? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the, 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 that and we were into the 60s. Yeah. We, that's how you, you can find cops like Batman and Robin, Gantz and them. Yeah. That's why you could find uh, Popeye and, 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 and Cloudy, you know, uh, Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso. Yeah. You know, you can't do that today. It's too tightly. You know, you're all... But these, these guys broke out and, and, and did what they had to do. They were in there just just doing it yeah. while while the police department was talking about what do you what, what do you mean and I'm exaggerating but what do you mean they're, they're, they're Italian they're, they're white what, what do you mean drugs are you sure that there's you know what I'm yeah. talking well, about that white whole, America that, that was a big generation. shock they didn't know that older generation like you know never but it was the police department yeah. you know what I'm talking about yeah the older hierarchy the, the older hierarchy in all honesty was the guys that really fought in the Second World War. Yeah. You know, in the Second World War, you know how the marriages lasted 50 years. There's yeah. no divorce. There's no drugs. There's no nothing like this. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. You know you know what I'm talking about? You know, we, riot? What do you mean? Are you out of your mind? Yeah. And that's what's leading us, you know. Wait a minute. Did you, did you get a haircut? Hold on a second. That uniform, wait, where's your hat? Yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, in the 60s, they're burning. You know, you know what they're doing? Yeah. For God's sake. One of the biggest tr uh, problems that I dodged was, you know, we weren't allowed to go to Watergate, uh, to uh, Woodstock. Yeah. I went. Yeah. On a motorcycle, I went. Hair longer than you could you could ever believe. And I, I, I went to Woodstock for two days. So I had sort of became that legend and stuff like that. People know I went to Woodstock. I became that, I became that guy more so as an individual rather than when Sonny and Eddie became partners, Gantz and thing, they became Batman and Robin. Uh, the guys up at uh, Fort Apache, uh, there was a couple of guys up there. even in at the, the Bronx, yeah. Yeah, you know, up, yeah. up, up in the Bronx. I was sort of, uh, I, I, I was sort of a, a loner. I, I, I've sort of become the, the, the face of the 2-8, uh, <laughs> you know, especially since writing the book. Yeah. But, you know, uh, uh, of what it was. And, you know, 
it makes me feel good like when I'm in a conversation and I'm with the old timers and we're around there these are my peers and we're around there talking and one of them one of them turns and says to the other guy yeah I worked with Randy didn't we work together yeah. I say yes you know yeah we did you know yes. it amount of respect it, yeah it makes it yeah. really it really makes me feel good and i i always say to him uh <clears throat> did i get you in trouble or did i get you promoted <laughs> you know, it was something along the lines like that but yeah uh but the movies the the, the, the movies i couldn't wait to get to the movies and dion believe it or not i couldn't wait to get on the other side of the camera yeah you know being a producer was almost like solving a homicide. You know, I got to the homicide. I had to call the photo unit. I had to call fingerprint. You know, I had to call the search team. I had to call the DA. I had to call the medical examiner. I can keep you here for. I there's ten things that I had to do as the producer. You know, yeah, doing the same thing. I hire the clothing department. Yeah. I the lunch. The people that are going to do, they don't even talk to each other. Yeah. I'm doing that. The scenery, the backdrop, the this. I very rarely get in with the talent, except, except you know, when it's above the line and I, I know what the money is. Look, this, and how a producer, how do I have that kind? Because you know what? This is called guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah. And that was a term in the 70s. When you do vigilante, you know what I'm talking about? The producer does vigilante. The producer says, no, you can't hire that person because we can't pay that person. You know, that's not like when you're going to do a studio and they come in, they take care of this. So you're given X amount of dollars. By the time I was doing, I did maybe three or four right in a row. They had New York Cop, Vigilante, uh, One Down, Two to Go, which was all black. They made me a sign, a sign. Yeah. And the sign said 25 cents on the dollar. Because in the last week of 10 days, I would stand up on the desk when we were indoors and I would say, look, I ain't got enough money to finish this movie. I'm telling you right now, we have to finish this movie for, for any of us to get paid. We got to finish this. So the best that I can do is give you all 25 cents on a dollar. If you're making $100 a week, you're going to get 25. I'll guarantee you that. Once the movie's in the can, you'll get your money. We will sell the movie. Yeah. And do you know that I did that three times? One guy, only one guy left. Really? They all stayed. They believed in you. Well, they believed in me, but they also believed in the project. Yeah. They also believed in the piece, you know? Yeah. I was never, never going to go home if there was a chance that I could solve that homicide. Yeah. No. I, if I'm going to get this guy, no. It's going to take me an hour or two more. I, I'll Give me another cup of coffee I, because I'm going to get this guy. Yeah. I'm going to finish this movie. And I had a habit of having that reputation. If I started this, I was going to finish it. And believe me, even with the Teamsters that I even knew... You know, <laughs> you ain't going to pull that shit on me with 25 cents on the dollar. And I would say, no, but I'll tell you what, I need a 25-foot truck. And you guys usually put an extra guy on the 25-foot truck. It's in the contract. I said, you put him on that truck. I said, I ain't paying him. And what are we going to do about that? <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> they still give me the 25-foot truck. Yeah. They didn't give me the guy. Yeah. So what I did was I put a PA on there to do the work of this teamster that was going to sit down anyway. But I always, I worked it out, but I worked it out in such a way 
that I came away with people patting me on the back, you know? Yeah, now, The French Connection was one of the first movies you did. You that was the first movie. Now, you, you had a, a funny story you told me before about when you first got into it with, with Freakin', where, where, where you were... Re- yeah, you, we argued. You didn't, you didn't realize, like you said, the R-E-A-L to R-E-E-L. Yeah, we had a fight. We, yeah. had, we had a big fight. I saw the rehearsal, yeah. and the rehearsal was that Gene Hackman gets out of the car, and Gene Hackman... The Frenchman at the end of the subway. Yeah, where he's and chasing the Frenchman. The, subway, yeah. the Frenchman's got no gun. He's got nothing. And the Frenchman's standing there. And Gene says, I, "At the top of the stop, subway stairs." Stop. And the and the guy turns around. Guy turns around. Yeah. And Gene Hackman shoots him in the back. And the guy falls down the stairs dead. I saw that rehearsal, and they did. And I went over to Billy, and I said, "Billy freaking yeah, yes." You're not going to film it this way. And freaking Billy ain't got no time. See what are you talking about? I said, "You can't do this." I said, that's my partner, Eddie Egan. I said, that's murder. He's coming. Billy says, I said, that's murder. You can't do this. And what we got into it, he says, this is what it is. You're going to see what everybody's It's murder because you, t- you, the guy's got his hands up. He's got his back yeah. to you. He's on arm. They get shot in the back. The heck is this? It's yeah. murder. <laughs> yeah. And so, that's R-E-A-L. You understand? Yeah. And Billy's telling me this. And we had words. Yeah. And I said, son of a bitch. I said, you know, if Eddie was here, Billy's, you know, take a fucking walk. Take it on the arches. And he films the whole goddamn thing. He films the whole thing. And I'll never forget it. Eight months later, we're sitting in the theater. And it's a, it's a premiere. And, we're sit- and I'm standing in the back, Dion, way up in the back. And of course, I'm nervous about my performance, which I haven't seen which gets the only laugh in the movie. And, I'm, and I did my own lines. And, and I'm, Dion, I'm, I'm there, and, and here comes this scene, and they're, and Gene Hackman shoots him. They all stand up there cheering like crazy. The whole crowd. The whole crowd. And I see Billy freaking running up the aisle. <laughs> Billy freaking says, works for me, works for them, I hope it works for you. <laughs> He ran back to the seat. Guess what? I received the goddamn poster. That turns out to be the poster. And he signed the poster. And he says, works for me. Worked for them. I hope it's working for you. Something along. The poster I the swear movie. to Christ. So I learned. Yeah. Learned I learned. That. I wasn't about to take anybody on. The next time that happened, it happened with Frank Sinatra. On, on a contract, contract on Cherry, Cherry Street. Street, yeah, yeah, where they had the guy put the gun down, and Sinatra just looks and looks and realizes that the guy killed the cop, and so Sinatra shoots him. And I went to Billy Graham, and Sinatra was right there. So Sinatra starts smoking, and, uh, and Billy, I said, Billy, I said, with all due respect, I said, can we do this scene for Mr. Sinatra this way? And 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 and, and Graham was what? And and by now Sinatra's calling me Randy. He says. You know, what, 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 what's wrong, Randy? In earnest, I said, you know, I said, I got to tell you the truth, Frank. Uh, Mr. S, I said, I got to tell you the truth. The guy's black. The guy's got no, he's got no gun. I said, and, 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 and you take my shotgun and you shoot him. He says, well, I'll take another gun. I said, no, that, 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 that's really not what it's about. And he said, well, well, and I said, so I go to the black guy. And I said, <clears throat> I'm now the black guy. And I have them say, put the gun down, put the gun down. And the black guy goes. And brings his hand down like he's going to. With a smile. Yeah, like he's going to shoot. Wham! Yeah. 
holy Christ, Sinatra gave me a, a chain with a medal with Francis on it. Yeah. Billy Graham said to me, and it was, you know. And it worked a lot better, too. But, but you know what, Dan? Yeah. I knew I was in the business. Yeah. You know what I'm saying, Dan? I knew I was in the business. Yeah. The only thing I never got a chance to do, but I did it in small parts uh, up there, was, was to direct. And, you know, I don't know lenses. I don't know this. And I wasn't about to do that with somebody else's dime. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I, I never got a chance, and I probably never will, uh, got a chance to do something like that. But I left the business and went into a business that I, I can't tell you the headaches, the heartaches, the sleepless nights. But I loved it. It's film. Film. Yeah. I I loved I lo I loved film. And I've done my own. And I've I've been rewarded for it and so forth and so on. Yeah. Now, um Roy Scheider. You became good friends with Roy Scheider. Always. Yeah. Always. And, and you and used to take Hackman. him on uh, and with Gene Hackman. Yeah, for, for for uh background for the French connection, you guys would go and uh go to shooting galleries. And you take you take them along. I would take them, yes. Yeah, just, I just took them along. Yeah. I took them along, yeah. and, and, including Billy Freakin. Yeah, including Billy Freakin. I took them along. Uh, Roy couldn't get enough. Uh, Billy Freakin couldn't get enough. Gene Hackman had enough. Yeah, Gene Hackman. He really thought that after we made the arrest and they were upstairs in the cage and stuff like that, that possibly they were going to go home. Yeah. They were going to be released. That, that, that ain't the way it worked. Now, if Gene and I sat down and talked about that, that would be one thing. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about my dead partner, but the way Eddie would talk to Gene, you know, ah, fuck him, you know what, that, this is what they deserve. You, you know, Gene, um, that's not the way. Yeah. That's not the way, because now these prisoners, these prisoners are like, you know, show me some mercy. I mean, I'm strung out. I'm going to get sick here. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know, so if you try to explain it to, to you want Gene, to give him coffee or something, you're like, no, you no, we can't. did, yeah. we not Eddie, yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. But you said Roy could have actually been a very good cop. You said he, he Billy, uh, Billy Freakin, Billy Freakin, and, and Roy Scheider as well, though. You said well, Roy Scheider, but yeah. Billy Freakin more. Yeah. You know, Billy Freakin wanted to fingerprint him, which I, I let him do. Billy Freakin came to court with us, which I let him do. <laughs> Roy, didn't, Roy, Roy didn't go that yeah. far. And, and, and Billy, had, Billy had questions. And in the end, to a degree, after Billy saw the process and stuff like that, yeah. uh, he was not Eddie Egan, but you know, hey, you know, you know what this guy's going to get now? This guy's going to get 60 days. You know, Billy and I sit and fuck him. You, you give it to him, you know. Yeah. But you know what? They're right. You, you give it to him. You take him off the street. It's less crime he's going to commit. And they try to clean him up, but you're not going to clean up anybody in 60 days. Yeah. Not heroin addicts. No, no. no, you, no you're not going to. You're not going to do it. Now you did the, you did the seven ups too, you, which was you were part I did of the French original connection. Seven, seven I was. Ups. I did the French Connection, and then French Connection two, and then they did uh, we did seven ups. The and at the same time, at the same time, at the same time, Eddie was doing with Robert Duvall badge three seven three. I did the stunt driving on on three seven three, and I did plenty of stunt driving on the seven ups. But I really started in the French Connection. I just drove two scenes in the French Connection, but I rode in the rest of them, even in the Master. Yeah. I rode that and operated the camera. Um, yes, 
then after that, I became in the East Coast Stuntmen's Association, and I would get calls, and I went to work on television shows such as Kojak and stuff, not as an actor, not as a producer, but as a stunt driver in the East Coast. I did very few stunt falls and stuff like that. I was not qualified. I was too old. I rolled the car over down on Wall Street. That was the first and that was the last time I ever did that. But I, I made some good money in, in, in the Stuntman's uh, in the stuntman's Association. Yeah, I did that. Because you were kind of trained already how to drive Yeah, car. I was. You know, and I did that. In, well, I raced. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I did in Florida. Uh, 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 quarter miles, not against cars, against the clock. Yeah. Airplane, gasoline, railroad tracks wow. on the back of the car. But, right... And then you did God Told Me To. You, you were in that. God Told Me To. Which is Larry Cohen. Oh, he yeah. was. You know, Cohen, wrote, cool Cohen wrote everything. You Andy, know. Andy uh, Kaufman's in that too before he was famous. Okay. And you know, that there's a famous scene in that where I get stuck out on the ferry boat for, for 12 hours. The guy ran the ferry boat aground and I'm out there with, uh, who's, the, who's the black actor that's in that? I forget. Oh my God. You know, he was the good looking black guy that ever, well, you know, uh, Lady Sings the Blues. Uh, That's Billy Holiday. Bill, yeah, but... Uh, 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 Billy... Yeah, you got it. It's Billy. And I work with him with Stallone in... Uh, in oh, uh, Billy D. Williams. Huh? Billy, Billy, Billy D. Williams. We're stuck out. <laughs> Very. I said, well... He said to me, do you swim? I said, yeah, but this oh, is... Oh, you, you did Nighthawks as well, then? Nighthawks. I did Nighthawks. Well, you, oh, see, this yeah. is segueing into something that's completely personal that I wanted to bring up. Joe Spinell. I know Joe Spinell very well. Yeah, and, that, and that, so he knew Lynn very well. Yeah, so you you were you knew Joe Spinell I mean, very well. Were, yeah, yeah. How was he? Is a yeah. He was very, a, Joe Spinell. Uh, Joe Spinell had a um, Joe Spinell had a disease, and it was um, um, I guess it's not a disease. Uh, he finally bled to death. Yeah, he suffered from. Uh, I forget. You can't clot right if you, if you, you, you can't. You, 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 can't your stop body it. can't form a clot. Can't. If, yeah. So can't. if you get a cut, you oh yeah. So I did. Uh, oh, I, I worked Nighthawk. Joe Spinell took my place in Nighthawks because after my words with with, uh, with, with Stallone, I said, yeah, "Okay, I, I said I, I I really don't belong here." And the director well, came and a, said, "He has a phenomenal part, Spinell, in that." Hey, that was mine. I know. He 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 gives some of one of the yeah, best lines did, in the in the. But, <laughs> but they gave him even more yeah. after it was Joe Spinell. Yeah. And his nickname was Spider. Yeah. I don't know how that came about. But Joe Spinell, and uh, I, I went to South America with him in uh, Sorcerer. That's a whole other... That's one of my favorite movies of all time, Sorcerer. That's freaking... Some of them say it's Billy Freakin's best I, movie. I, I agree that I think it's that's Billy a, You know, that's a remake of Wages of, of Wages Fear or Wages yeah, yeah. of Fear Sin. Wages of Fear. Wages of Fear? Yeah. Yeah, French movie, right? If you yeah. ever talk to Freakin again, please tell him that there's a whole underground of people that want to see a, a special edition like he did with Cruising. See if he can come out with like a little, you know, two disc box set of, you know, special features in the whole like remaster of uh, Sorcerer. And I, it, I think it's a, it's 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 one of the greatest movies of all time. Very underrated. And you said it flopped because of a lot of things. Where uh, it came out the same same weekend as Star Wars. Well, no, it People came it came out it came out following Exorcist with Billy Freakin, and everybody just assumed they were going to go and see Heads Turn Around, yeah. you know. And then completely. Well, different. we were down in the jungle there for I can't, I can't tell you how Where long. Were you, Guatemala? Or? No, we went to uh, the, uh, no Dominican uh, the Dominican no Republic, and Joe Spinell. Yeah, Joe Spinell was down there. I was down there. The guy in my scene. Or Scheider. 
Roy Scheider. Yeah. Well, I go down to kill Roy Scheider. Yeah. And the, 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 the guy that's in the scene with me, how the movie ends, mm -hmm. with Charlie Parker playing. Yeah. You know? She's dancing with the girl. At the She's barbecue. dancing with yeah. the girl. And the guy that, his name was Frankie the Lip. Yeah. Frankie the Lip was a half ass a bit of a wise guy. You know who he was? No. The maitre d' at the Copa. So whenever I went to the Copa, I got a front table right there at the Copa. It was Frankie the Lip. Oh, wow. Yeah, he did. Well, I knew Jules, po Jules Podell, but half the time Jules didn't know what was going on. So, yeah, Frankie uh, sat us right down for Bobby Darren. And, but, yeah, uh, The Sorcerer, yeah, that was, uh, you know, halfway around the world. That You know, Israel? Yeah. Uh, I believe Iran or Iraq. I'm not I sure Iraq. which. Iraq? I think Iraq? So. Oh, yeah. Uh, South America, New South York. South America, New uh, Queens uh, and New York. Elizabeth, uh, yeah. New Jersey. And yeah. Now comes the... Fa yeah, New Elizabeth, New Jersey yeah, was yeah. right. That was the wedding. That's where they hold up the... Yeah, the they hold up the place. Yeah. That was New Jersey, yeah. right. And uh, that, that that comes out of something that Billy and I have going on for over 30 years. When, I, when I'm... It, it, the guy in Queens, when I say to Roy Scheider, you know, where... You know, well... Where am I going? Yeah, listen... <laughs> You take a train down to Baltimore. I know the lines. Take a train down to Baltimore and you see a guy by the name of Nat Glick. Yeah. And then he says to me, where am I going? I said, I don't want to know. No, I don't want to know. <laughs> so Billy and I, whenever we got in trouble on a movie or whatever it was or something like that, I, <laughs> we would send each other a line. And I just sent my screenplay out to Billy Freakin. And I said on my big sheet of paper, I said, help. I put it down there with the screenplay. And down below, I said, please don't send me to see Nat Glick. I don't <laughs> think he can help. And Billy's got it. Yeah. And I've gotten stuff back from uh, uh, from Billy Freakin'. That's the same way that we've kept it for years. You did Sorcerer, which which is, again, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. No, no one ever sees where the, where the title is. But if you watch, look at one of the trucks. Both yeah. the trucks. One's called El Lazaro. And the other one is Sorcerer. Well, and, and Sorcerer's the one that blows up. But El Lazaro is the one that, that, that survives. That, yeah. That, that uh, Scheider's able to drive back. Oh, yeah. And then what's his... his if he, only if he left when he could have. He stayed a little while to dance with that girl. And what happened? You came. <laughs> and you uh, and you said that... There, you told me there were going to be a sequel. It was. Absolutely. And we were going to we, we, we film the sequel... Uh, we were going to film the sequel down there. Yeah, but, you know these things. I, I, you know, I'm yeah. not on that level. I, I, I don't know what happened. So, well, the picture didn't do very well. That's yeah, what happened. Due force. So sadly, we went down, and on our way back, and I, I do know the name of this book, but anyway, and uh, on our way back, he said to me. So obviously, it probably didn't work out. Well, I, uh, so. He said to me, he said, I bought this book, and it's called Cruising. And I, I, I know who wrote this book. I mean, do you I, know? I don't know offhand. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, but I bought it for the title. He said, uh, but I, 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 I don't want you to read this book. He said, and you, 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 you worked in that world. You, you, you worked on these murders. You worked in there. And I said, yes, I did. And then that... that Part of that, that book mixed with, with your bag murders became crude. He never, I never read the book to this day. Yeah. So if anybody wants to accuse anything that I brought to that picture that I took out of that book, it's not true. Now, I, for where I work, I have a, uh, a friend, Rebecca Rose Woodland, who was a mutual friend named Ed O'Neill. 
You I worked know. with Ed O'Neill very well, long on, time on 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 uh, 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 on uh, cruising, and I had her text him, and he Ed O'Neill says, "Tell him to, to say, tell me to say hi to you for him," and he asked me to say, "quote Ask him if his balls still float." Yeah, that's, I, that, that's what Ed O'Neill asked me. Asked that's, me to ask that was him. that's how I became a legend. I, I I I never want to put this on tape, but this I invented the floating ball test, right? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, which is it? Which it turns out to be in, in cruising. Yeah, well, yeah. Billy, Billy wanted to put it in cruising. Yeah, yeah. yeah I used to, uh, I used to question people, and uh, <laughs> I had a, a detective walk in with a bat and just a jock strap and a cowboy hat and the boots on, and he would yes. come in and bang on the friggin' table, and I'd be sitting there talking to Ambrose and the, the suspect. Act like he wasn't and I'd even say there. To, yeah. And I'd say, Ambrose, you know, the, the, the Mets were terrible last night. He says, I don't know what game you were watching, but it was the Yankees. And the guy would be saying, who's that? Who the hell is that? And then the guy would leave and I'd say, okay, you want to do this? And then I said, look, you know, I have a solution that I can put in a pail. I said, and the solution, I said, you know, when I ask you something, I said, you know, if your balls float, you're telling the truth. But if your balls sink... You're not telling the truth. And it's really called the floating ball test. And the guy would say, what? I'd say, yeah, it's a floating ball test. I said, you want to take the test if you're telling the truth and everything like that? That blew up in my face one time because I was, I was in the back in the court one time and I was bringing out some other prisoners. And there was uh, Ambrose standing with the guy that we locked up for murder. And as I walked out... As I walked out, Deanna, as I come out with the prisoner, and now the bench is here with the judges sitting because you walk out on the side, and they're all sitting here, and the audience is there, and the guy's saying, but I wanted to take the floating ball test. He won't give me the fl- He won't give me the floating ball test. I grabbed the prisoner, I turned around, and I went back inside, and I closed the door, and I said, oh, God, I can't go out there. A floating ball test. Uh, this is how you become uh, yeah. somewhat of Ed O'Neill just said this yeah he said this you know I, this I met you know how I met Ed O'Neill no. I met him in Knockout oh, really? in a play where Danny Ayala and him the name of it was Knockout okay yeah and of course Ed O'Neill goes on to do Married Married oh, with Children well, did he play uh, and he, he played Eddie Egan he played Eddie Egan for yeah. before so, we were children so tell your friend to, to, to go back and, and, and say that you know yeah my ball's <laughs> my, my 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 ball still float to yours. I will. I will. Yeah, he's on that Modern Family show. I, I so, enjoy him. Yeah, yeah. I and I enjoy I enjoy him. I mean, I didn't think he was ever going to work after Married with Children. Yeah, well, he's a, he did he did a little Senate with Dragnet too for a little while. They revitalized the Jack Webb Dragnet. I know. I know. Um, so you, yeah, you did cruising. I mean, cruising was a was Ed O'Neill was one of the most you know in this business. Him, Tony Lobianco, Roy Scheider. Uh, Bobby Duval, uh, I mean, some big Meryl Streep. Yeah. What regular people? Yeah. Just really regular people. And so, if I'm leaving out some, yeah. there's a reason I'm because I'm not going to say anything bad about them. But yeah. I'm just, yeah. Paul Newman. Yeah. Oh, come on. Paul Newman would beer for beer drink you under the table yeah. when we did Fort Apache. Yeah, you worked with him in Fort Apache. Oh. A sweetheart. Which was, I think, Danny Aiello's first movie. Danny, Dan, yeah. No, Danny, we worked uh, Blood Brothers. Oh, okay. Rich, it was Richie Gere's first movie. Wow. Where Richie Gere, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we had worked with Richie Gere in a show that Sonny uh, 
myself and a few others, but mainly Sonny created called um, Cliff Gorman. Uh, Richie Gere was the state trooper. Cliff Gorman was the New York City detective. And the black guy was the Fed. Strike Force. Oh, okay. Well, Strike Force yeah. on television. Yeah, Richie. I met Richie Gere there. And then we did Blood Brothers. And then I met Richie Gere and worked with Richie Gere uh, on a, a called, uh, what was it, Power? Yeah. Where he was playing the trumpet and stuff like that. We yeah. filmed that in Kaufman Studios. Wow. But then Richie Gere began to, you know. Yeah, send. Yeah, and you did you did Contract on Cherry Street. Oh, yeah. Uh, you were in Superman. I was in Superman. Or were you in Superman? Did uh, you Richard Donner's Superman? Yeah, I played Down on the Tracks. Oh, uh, when, when you, you go after uh, Ned Beatty? Is yeah, that, you, Down on the Tracks, right. Are you the one that gets hit by the train? or supposedly? No, I don't get hit by the train. The other one, the other guy gets hit by the train. That's what's left of him, yeah. Yeah. I was down in the, down in the tracks. I'm working down in the tracks, and we're, we're down there for days, and we're working down in the tracks, and this guy walks up to me and says, Randy Jurgensen? I said, uh, yes. <laughs> he said, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're married to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, uh, Lynn, uh, Lynn Bucci? And I said, yes. He said, I'm her uncle. <laughs> so I met him down, I don't, I don't, what he had to do with the trains, I have no idea. Under Grand Central. Yeah, down in Grand Central. And that's when... That's when we learned that there was a whole life down in there. Yeah. And later on did a movie, which I just did some production work called Chud. Cannibalistic Humanoid under, Underground Dwellers. I didn't yeah. know you worked on Chud. Only, I did some production work for yeah. them. I did some uh, money production work. I was able to shift around some money for them. Yeah. I made uh, It's a good movie. It holds up today. I made a Teamster deal for them. I was able to make some of, some of those deals. Yeah. But you see, back... Back then, Dion, making those films, it was called guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah. And we, we, you, you, you could do then what we can't do today. I could get in a car, put the camera in there, and drive the hell out of it, you yeah. know, and we actually just took those shots in unprotected streets. Nothing happened. Um, you weren't allowed to go on the subways. Went up into the trains, you know, someplace up in the Bronx, and we stole the shots. Yeah. And that's the way that we did things. When we did, when we did Maniac, for Joe nights, Spinell, great, well, Will Lustig, for yeah. Bill Lustig, for yeah. nights, we went into Jersey, and you know what? I, I'm not going to say that I'm I'm not proud of this, but we actually broke into the cemeteries, yeah. and we filmed in the cemeteries. Those were, let's put it this way, those were real people, dead or not you know and on those graves and we were just filming we stole all of those things that was you know those shots and that we stole those shots on the subway we stole those shots i mean you're supposed to have a a permit for a location and you know lustig would say you know if we could get something here and stuff like that i knew the cops the cops all knew me i said look you know cops says i'm going to take lunch yeah. You know, and he'd go, and we set up the camera. No, no protection, no nothing. And Lustig would get the shot. Yeah, just, we didn't pay the city. We didn't get no permits. No, we got sound. Okay. We got wild track. Or yeah, yeah. But uh, absolutely, and so that was the that was the filmmaking that we were doing through all of those independents that I did for a lot of years, starting with Vigilante and Maniac and. Uh, one down, two to go. New York cop with Steve McQueen's son, Chad. Chad. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, uh, Paul Servino's daughter who worked in that movie. The next movie she works for Woody Allen, wins an Academy Award. Yes, that was all of the independents and there were a lot of them doing it. And I really... But then every now and then I would jump up and do... Uh, I, 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 I would do a picture with Meryl Streep and Roy Scheider, which I played the car thief in... Uh, it was called Stab, but I, I forget what they released it under. Uh, but I, I, I would appear in, in those movies. Uh, um, I appeared with, uh, I did a lot of work, uh, made her undercover in uh, where she uh, was Candy. Candy was the undercover female. Tony Williams was the, was the black, uh, report to the commissioner. Okay. With, uh, with, with a friend who's a friend. What a class act. Uh, the Spanish uh, uh, li lived down on 110th Street in Amsterdam Avenue. We knew him when I was a cop. Um, Eddie, uh, I called him Eddie all the time. Yeah. He was in. Um, he was the hotel keeper in uh, Pretty Woman. Oh, 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 yes, I, I know. Yeah, because he's in the Taking a Pelham One Two Three. He's in the Taking a Pelham One Two yeah, Three. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's in. He's in. A, he's in a crap load. He's in a couple Kojaks and. Oh yeah, yeah or like oh. Alonzo something. I forget his name. Yeah. No, it's not. It's it's Hector. Hector, Hector Alessandro. There you go. Hector Alessandro. Yes. Yes. Yep. Friend. Yeah, he's yeah he's in the Taking a Pelham. So you were you were part of all those movies back then. I was the seventies. Yeah. The seventies. Yeah, but you I mean you worked into it? You did. You did. Uh, you did an episode of Homicide: Life on the Street. Two. You did two. I played the lieutenant. I played not such a up and up lieutenant, but you know, it was a little shady. Yeah. He was he was a little shady. Homicide. Uh, he beat me to that book. You know, I tried to option that book. Really? Yeah. The, he they 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 beat me by the book a couple of months. I probably couldn't have afforded it anyway. But that that came from a book called Homicide. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did that. I worked in One Hundred Center Street for who's now passed on, uh, you know, the director from Serpico. And uh, yeah. I, did a couple, I did a couple of episodes on 100 Center Street with Richie Bright. Yeah. And, of course, Richie Bright is Godfather. Richie Bright is the guy that closes the door at the end when Al Pacino, yeah. somebody's Kissing kissing his, his yeah, ring, yeah. and she's looking, and Richie Bright, oh, man. And he lied to her, yeah. Yeah. Oh, he <laughs> Richie Bright, yeah. Yeah. And you, uh, uh, you I probably did dinner. about 35 movies and I can't tell you how many television shows I did. And then I produced my own. Yeah. I, I, I wrote, raised the money and produced Heart yeah. uh, with Brad Davis and, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, Steve Buscemi's first part. Oh, yeah. Yep, Steve Buscemi's in Heart. Um, you associate produced Thinner as well. <laughs> A heartache and a headache. Yes, dinner. Yeah. I did. That's uh, from Stephen... Stephen uh, King. Yeah, sure. yeah Stephen King. Yeah, that was a location shoot. Yeah. Location shoots generally are tough. Yeah. They generally are tough. You're unwelcome after a while. Yeah. Um, and Donnie Brasco you did as well. I did Donnie Brasco. Yeah. I did Donnie Brasco. Oh, my God. Did Joe and I have fun. Or Johnny Depp. Uh, yeah, I introduced him to all the mob guys, which they wanted to. Yeah. Damn, they got in trouble for that. <laughs> Director, can I, can I, can I, can I meet them? Yeah. Okay. Out to Brooklyn we went with the pigeons. And, and all these guys are now in jail. 
Because you knew you knew Pistone. He was originally I knew Pistone forever. Yeah, he helped you with, with oh, your. Oh, I knew I knew Pistone yeah. when I played basketball against him. Yeah, many. That was the sixties. Yeah, that was the sixties. Um, then you, the latest thing you did, which I saw actually here, was Precinct Hollywood, which I loved. I did Precinct Hollywood. Yeah, two thousand six or they, so, maybe two thousand seven. If they were, if they were, you know, I I, I got an, an opening now where I think that I'm going to be. I'm going to try to do the one that I wanted to do after that. Yeah. And that was about, you know, lawyers, people who played lawyers, won Academy Awards and so forth and so on, as versus the real lawyers that I could go and get. Johnny Cochran was going to be one, but he left us. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But but I've devoted most of my time now, Dion, to, you know, getting uh, Circle of Six made into a uh, movie, which is hasn't been an easy task. And this is... Something to even touch on. Yeah, that that was your big case that you came out in '72, and that that was your book, Circle of Six. Yeah, and you're yeah. in the process of getting that yeah. done now. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I I don't want to jinx myself, but I'm sort of sitting on the wire right now uh, with a very good friend of mine, Philip Rosenberg, who wrote Contract on Cherry Street, yeah. and who was a, a who wrote uh, who wrote the pilot uh, for the first. Uh, movie of the week that I produced I had done other movies of the week and that was the one of Shadow of a Killer of where I'm sending the first two guys to the electric chair Philip Rosenberg wrote that wow so Philip Rosenberg and I and he wrote the Menendez you know the oh yeah yeah that was a miniseries yeah so we're very very close sitting on the fence it could go either way to having a, 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 a small book deal yeah and it's going to be a novel about 42nd Street. In fact, we've got some of it already written. But it's not 42nd that you know it. It's 42nd Street back in the day. Yeah. Separate of Circle of Six. This oh, is, definitely. Yeah. It's back when, when, when I was working down there in the unit, and it, the unit was called the Pussy Posse. <laughs> the old days. That's like the days of Maniac, where you see you know, oh, that, that, of, of working, at, at catching all those shots. Do you know that Maniac was banned in uh, uh, banned showing in, uh, in 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 Los Angeles? And do you know who championed it? No. Willie Billy Freakin. Really? Billy Freakin went and did to this that, and they showed it. Why? It first of all, it was uh, it was a non non seg uh, movie. Yeah. It was a non seg movie. Lot of, lot of so we were trying to put them into. No, I never did a non-SAG movie. I did, I did non-union yeah. movies, but always SAG. But a lot of the, the, the actors that are in it, a lot of the, the, the people, the, the victims and stuff, they were porn stars that, that, that I guess Spinell knew. A lot of the girls, there's a couple in there that... Uh, no. Shannon Mitchell's in Maniac and... Well, no, the, uh, the, the, the big girl that was in uh, uh, um, a Maniac was... Uh, her name was Caroline M- M- M-U-R-O. Yeah. She was in James Bond. Yeah, yeah. No, they were no... Yeah. Uh, porn? Well, if they were, Joe Spinell brought them, but yeah. I didn't I didn't. There's know. a couple lower ones, like, you know, you'd see, like, say, the, when he kills the nurse in the subway She was a porn station. star? The other one was, when, when they walk out, she says goodbye. Really? Yeah, there's a couple that they fill, just to fill the roles up. I honestly, I didn't know that. Yeah. But they, they didn't want it because it was a non-SAG. Yeah, it was non-SAG. Where it, 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 we had SAG actors, but it was non-SAG because SAG would not approve of uh, the material. Yeah. And they wouldn't do it. And so then we went off to do it non-SAG. And of course, you know, I, 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 and I did that movie. I did that whole movie in cash. Yeah. No checks. Yeah. Cash. Tom Savini did the special effects. Tom Savini did the special effects. Do you know there's a group called... Um, 
Don't let your love run out on me, baby. And it's got like four guys that sing in there. Yeah. Um, Lynn, Lynn knows the name of this group. Um, they financed part of that movie. Really? Because one of them was the boyfriend of Carolyn, who was in... Oh, he was in the movie. In, no, he wasn't in the movie. He was a singer. She was in the James Bond movie. Yeah, she yeah, she was. And he, brought, he wanted her in Maniac. And she couldn't act worth a damn. <laughs> and to bring her into Maniac is when he helped finance the the movie. Well, and I remember when he came with the, he came with the money, and uh, he said, "You know, I'm supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to come with money, and I'm supposed to give the the money to you. Are you gonna, you know, sign for the money?" And I said, "No." Yeah. And he said, uh, "Well, he says, how am I gonna have how am I gonna have a record uh, a record of this?" I said, "Look, we're giving out points in the movies that." That I will give you, but no, I'm not. I, 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 I'm not doing this. And he was very, very reluctant Did to. Did you produce it as well, or you just you just worked to, you just financially worked the money in from Maniac? I financially worked the money on uh, Maniac. I think I'm an associate producer or something. Yeah. On they it. tried to do a sequel of that, which never got off. No, yeah. and it was called Maniac Cop. Yeah, that's what they tried to do. Oh, okay. The sequel called Maniac. Well, then, Cop. What's this? He ended up doing Maniac Cop. Uh, will Lusting with. Um, uh, Robert Davi and he did that and that money was raised that money was raised in Khan after Maniac came out Lustig went over there and said he wanted to do Maniac Cop on the title yeah. he raised foreign money to and do right Maniac over. Cop and that came out like in the middle 80s I'd say I forget what the hell I had to do that I couldn't do uh, Maniac Cop I was doing something else yeah oh, Bill Lustig and I yeah pretty pretty yeah pretty close Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please check out Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers on Facebook, Twitter, at Sat Sleepovers, our homepage, saturdaysleepovers.podwits.com, and you can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, and most other streaming sites. This is Dion Baia. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again in two weeks for another all-new episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Do you remember a time when sleeping on the floor with your friends wouldn't have been considered weird? The management of this website invites you to a new dimension in podcasting. An experience so fun, it can only be compared to a childhood sleepover. It's not just about horror. Tom Atkins proves that any man is leading man material. (laughs) It's not just about action. If you're going to rank Van Damme movies... Yeah, it's up there. I'd put it top five for sure. It's not just about comedy. There's no other person in the world that loves Weekend at Bernie's more than you. It's not just about science fiction. Hang a scrim with, like, a beautiful comb over. It's about nostalgia. Can you survive the Saturday night movie sleepover? It's not a movie. It's a podcast about movies. You can follow Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers at saturdaysleepovers.podwits.com on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and Player FM.